Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan. And my guest today is someone who I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from and someone that I've ad- admired from a distance for, for quite a few years, although he, he doesn't know it. After 25 years in the media industry, leading creative brand and marketing in companies like MTV, Bravo, Cartoon Network, Extreme Sports Channel, Harper Collins Publishers, and then an advertising agency, he changed direction and created the Bike Shed Motorcycle Club. It started in 2011 as a blog about motorcycle culture, which launched into an annual exhibition, retail and hospitality event in 2013, which celebrated its 10th event last May at the Tobacco Dock in London with 17,000 attendees, and then in 2015 opened as a full-time destination venue in Shoreditch under four huge Victorian railway arches, offering club-level hospitality, retail events, a barber shop, galleries and lounge spaces to a global audience of people who love motorcycles and people who love people who love motorcycles and their friends, their dogs and kids. The club, which doesn't require membership but has about 800 members, welcomes 2,400 people a week through its doors and reaches 2.4 million people a month on social media globally. And in 2020, they're opening a 30,000 square foot venue in Los Angeles, which just sounds awesome. Please welcome Dutch von Sammerin. Dutch, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. That was a very nice intro. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Everybody sort of says that, you know, and when you sit back and listen to your own intro or the intro read about you, you often sit and think, well, I'm not too bad a person really, am I? It does uh, sound like a whole bunch of achievements. I'm not sure I can claim full responsibility for but it, it's fantastic and, and when you describe it in that way it does sound pretty awesome well it is pretty awesome i think the uh, you know as a big motorcycle fan if you talk to anybody about me they'll tell you that i'm always happiest on two wheels um the the bike shed's a fabulous place tell me about it's how it came about and, and what it's become it, it came about by accident really um i didn't realize there was such a huge sort of gap in the market for looking after what I think of as maybe the 99 percenters in motorcycle culture. Um, I mean, the whole of the motorcycle industry is wrapped around this kind of top tier of people that either go racing or they dedicate their lives to being quite geeky bikers. Um, and, And the whole of the sort of development of motorcycles is either sort of commuting and transport or it's sport and MotoGP. But there's a whole bunch of motorcycle riders who love bikes. They consider it a lifestyle proposition. Um, and it probably has more in relation to maybe wearing a nice watch or playing a guitar than it does to the transport industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and those people weren't catered for and the industry hadn't evolved. Um, and if you go to motorcycle destinations, if you go to motorcycle events, they're usually down and dirty, spit and sawdust, 
Um, they're either trade fairs or they're dodgy roadside cafes. And, and, I, and I think what happened was by writing about the sort of the, I guess, the creative side and the cultural side of bikes as a blog, I mm-hmm. discovered a huge audience of people that were really weren't being served by the motorcycle magazines or the motorcycle shows. And that prompted us to create this annual event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we rented some arches in Shoreditch in 2013 and 3000 people turned up on the back of about 20,000 Facebook followers, mm-hmm. um, from all over. I mean, you know, people came from Thailand to come to this event that we wow. put on. Right. And it was such a big success for us in these two railway arches that we did another event that same year and 5,000 people turned up. And, um, and that was such a big thing. And, and so many people felt as though we were speaking to them for the first time mm-hmm. as motorcycle riders and aficionados and people who just liked bikes and thought they were cool. We'd created this inclusive, hospitality-focused, curated event. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the way it turned into what we have now was you put all of that effort into a weekend event where you, you create bars and you know you have sort of coffee pop-ups and curated motorcycles on plinths and you have tattoo shop pop-ups and barbershop pop-ups and, and all these people come. Mm-hmm. Um, and on a Monday, you don't want to pack it away. Yep. And most people's reaction was when they came for our weekend event was, why do you have to close? Could you just not leave this here? Yep. And we'll come every weekend. In fact, hell, we'll come every day. If you're going to serve really good food like this, really good coffee like this, and really nice beers, and I can get a haircut um, and look at some stunning bikes and art and photography, um, please, could you do this every single day? And we were persuaded to do that by people that were willing to invest in us, mm-hmm. literally invest in us. Um, it, it took a long time to come around to that. I mean, I, I spent about a year trying to write a business plan for someone else because I had a grown-up job in advertising as a creative director. Yeah. I was quite comfortable doing that. I, I had a nice four-day week and a, and a five-day week salary. So I was quite happy where I was. But the more I put the business idea together and we looked for venues and we worked out what the possibilities were, the more I realized that I wanted to run it. And that's how it came about was, you know, discovering a tribe of people mm-hmm. that felt the same way I did about motorcycle culture, not biking, not bikers, but riders. Um, and then realizing that and there were enough people like me to create a business. You talk about club level hospitality or club level um, service. What does that mean? I think what it is, we live in a very commoditized world in terms of retail and hospitality where, you you know, you're a a wallet walking in the door. Mm -hmm. And and I certainly think in London, you know, there are a lot of businesses that operate on the fact that they'll only ever see you once. And if you don't come again, it doesn't really matter. Um, And I think that's a bit of a shame, really. I mean, I I understand that business is business and that we all need to a degree to to commoditize what we do. And and look at margin and GPs and, and make sure that we're controlling our costs and, and that, you know, we, we've got the right level of staffing for the amount of turnover we have. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that's really intangible is how you treat people. And making people feel welcome is a really big thing. I mean, I'm a very big fan of the brand Deus Ex Machina, mm-hmm. um, which is originally in Australia, branched out into the rest of the world. And, and I was very disappointed to going to one of their venues in the U.S. where when I turned up, having made my pilgrimage to this motorcycle destination venue, mm-hmm. when I got there, no one seemed to care that I'd arrived. I was there with a motorbike on my T-shirt, 
I turned up in a convertible rented Mustang, which is what you do if you go to Los <laughs> Angeles. And I walked in, and in on a Wednesday afternoon with my wife to ogle the motorcycles and look at the gear and check out all this cool stuff. And out of the four staff in the venue, no one cared that we were there, even though we were the only two customers. And I was a bit blown away by mm. that. Um, and it's the opposite of the experience I had as a customer when I joined many years ago Soho House, yep. when it was just one club destination. And what I loved about that was they, you know, whenever I went there, they greeted me by name. They were glad to have me back. And I'm sure it was just, you know, a, even when I swiped my card, my name came up on a terminal, but they treated me like somebody who was part of the furniture. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that if you ride motorcycles, um, you're in a club. You, you know, there's that thing. You go to a wedding on a table full of boring people, mm -hmm. um, and then you discover the guy at the far end rides a bike, and suddenly that's it. You two are best buddies for the rest of that wedding. Yeah, that's enough, isn't it? And yeah. it's like, yeah, you've discovered something about that person. And I thought that the difference between offering somebody a burger or a T-shirt or a beer or a cocktail or a coffee mm -hmm. Um, that makes you feel special is the welcome that you get. It's how people treat you. Yep. It, you know, if you treat people as though you, you, you care that they turned up, it's a completely intangible cost-free bit of behavior. But we tell our staff when someone comes here, make their day because they've chosen to come here. And we don't know whether they've come here all the way from Italy or Singapore or whether they've just walked in off the street in Shoreditch because they want a coffee, mm -hmm. treat them the same. And it doesn't matter whether they're a member or not treat them like they remember and i think that's really really important and i think it's why we get such amazing reviews on google and TripAdvisor. well you do and you get you know you, you punch well above your weight as far as as trip advisors concerned one of the things i noticed about the place and i uh, which i absolutely love is is how the staff look after people how do you hire people that fit with the culture that you're looking for um it, it's it's difficult hiring good people full stop in, in any kind of hospitality industry. You know, as we know, turnover's high and most people in the hospitality industry, really, that's not their industry. They're busy doing something else and it's just something they do for a short while. But I think the real key is having the right managers. It's about creating a top-down culture where they can see that the managers behave in a way that they're then expected to behave. We have an amazing team. Um, really strong GMs and AGMs who look after the business and they make sure that culture goes all the way down the food chain. Um, but also as owners, we're very much in the space. And when we're busy, you know, Vicky will dive in there and she'll be washing up glasses behind the bar and clearing mm -hmm. tables. And, and, um, and also we have hosts and we'll act as hosts and seat people and make sure they're comfortable. And, and I think if you've got an ownership and a management structure that is prepared to muck in, and leads by example. I mean, it's good parenting. You know, kids grow up to mimic yeah. their parents. Um, if you create a culture in a business where you give, you care about staff and you care about customers, and that's visibly mm -hmm. apparent, you'll pass that culture down. And when staff don't fit, they don't pass their probation. It's that mm -hmm. simple. Especially hosts and key staff. You know, if they're if they're not going to act as though they care about the people that wander in you know, with their eyes looking around, trying to decide if they're going to stay and take a seat or not. They're not the right people for mm -hmm. the business. So you've just got to really think, does this person I've just hired represent me and my vision for this business and the culture we've created? And if they don't, don't keep them. Or don't interview them even, um, I guess. is the Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're looking for a connection. 
you're, you're, I mean, we have a lot of transient staff that are here because really they're a graphic designer or a web developer or an mm-hmm. actor or they want to work in media. Um, and we end up keeping them for a really long time as waitresses yeah. and, and waiters and door hosts because we treat them well and they have a good time and the culture here is really nice. I mean, it's great actually to have a business where loads of our staff after their shift stay after Uh work and have a drink and invite their friends or they bring their other half here and have dinner. And we encourage that. We think that's great. That, that really is cool. And there's, there's very much a feeling of people wanting to be there. Um, which I, when you, when you told that story about Deuce and and I, it just, it, it irritates me to my core that, you know, you should go somewhere you're so excited about going to, and when you get there, you're disappointed by it. Um, especially in the States where you expect service to be very good. I mean, walking into a, a mate of mine asked me to pick him up a, a Harley T-shirt in Orlando recently, and although I have a, a vehement hate of Harley-Davidson's, which I, mainly because I find it amusing to hate them, um, the service in that place was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, they were so keen for me to be in there, I, you know, and uh, then helped me choose what he needed. Um, it was wonderful. You're going to take this to America, um, and you've got this fantastically huge venue to open in San Francisco. Is it San Francisco? Los Angeles. Los Angeles first, yeah. Los Angeles. How are you going to do that? Because I get how you can lead from the front in your own business. I get how hands-on you can be in hiring and choosing the staff that you choose. But when you scale this overseas, how does it continue to be the same thing? I think physically we have to be there a lot. I think we can't get away from that. Vicky and I have, I think in the last 18 months, we've been to LA 16 times. And um, in the first year of operation, I fully intend us to be there half the time. Um, also, we have an amazing, I mean, the, 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 we have a, the guy, Stuart Fairbrass, who was our GM, then became our operations director and is now the COO. He's also amazing and brilliant um, and a, a kind of motorcycle aficionado through and through. Mm-hmm. One of us will always be there. Um, and we've also found great people in, in L.A. I mean, the great thing is that when you add riding a motorcycle to other areas of business, whether that's media or hospitality or retail, you find your tribe. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that means when we're out there looking, we're not just looking in, in the normal kind of world of, of sort of human traffic looking for a job. Um, we've got an amazing editorial director who's a rider and, and writer and and also we've got somebody who's going to be looking after partnerships for us. And all of those people, are, they're, they're people like us. We've found our tribe and mm-hmm. they will be the leaders who lead by example. So if you're talking to talking to people who are, are running other types of businesses, you mentioned the word tribe a few times and it, it's, it's a lovely word because it, it, it certainly encompasses what you're talking about. How do other people identify what their tribe is and how do they then seek the, to, to serve that? It's a it's a really interesting question and a difficult one to answer. I mean, I have a lot of people who have asked that question in various different ways and say, "Well, how do we find what you've found?" And, and I and I still some you know do quite a lot of brand strategy and marketing consultancy for people. Mm-hmm. And you, you'll get some really odd brands that will say to me, "Well, how do we create community?" And it's it's kind of like, well, if you haven't got a community, you can't magic one up. It's got to be mm-hmm. wrapped around something authentic. Um, and sometimes people are looking in the wrong direction. Um, I'd, I'd say that you've got to find who your aficionados are, who are, the, who are your natural champions, and try and work out what it is that, you know, that makes them care about what you do. I mean, if you're a place that specializes in amazing cocktails, who are the people that come to you because of those cocktails and think that that's an amazing level of service? And 
you know, could they be your ambassadors? Could they be your advocates? Could be that? Could they be the people that answer questions on your behalf when people ask ask a question on Google mm-hmm. um, or TripAdvisor, which happens all the time for us? I mean, we've we've got a membership club that started out as a reward scheme and has ended up being a really social mm-hmm. thing based on the customers who come here because of all the different things we do. But it doesn't have to be bikes. It, it might just, you know, it might be a lot of other things about the, the business that you run. It might be the art that you've got on the walls or it might be the events you put on. Um, but you go looking where things are already partially there. Mm-hmm. Don't try and invent something that doesn't exist. I think that's where a lot of brands go wrong. Um, and, and there are a lot of really kind of horrible commoditized brands out there that provide really boring services mm-hmm. who then try and create community by doing things that don't make sense. You, you've got to stand on the shoulders of the things you've already done. I mean, I've worked for some brands that have done really weird things mm-hmm. and they try and break into communities that have no relevance to what they do. And I'm like, stay closer to home and you'll find something real. What's the what's the future of a business like yours? Because you mentioned also you talked about community and it does feel like a community. One of the things that striked me um, the last time I was down, I met someone for uh, for lunch who who was uh, as a business meeting. Now I rode down because because I could. Um, he turned up in a suit and didn't look out of place at all because the the mixture of people there was was wide. Um, you know, you've got the the you've you're very tattooed. You know what typical sort of biker well, I guess stereotypical looking biker guy and then everybody else who loves bikes and the rest of it but how does the business develop in the future because that those I guess the community changes over time um, I think the real key to any good brand business is evolution um, we're, we're all sort of um, I think what a lot of people do is they set something up and then it's kind of um, carved in stone. Mm-hmm. And I think you can have principles carved in stone, but you've got to allow the execution of those principles to evolve. I had a very interesting experience as creative director for Bravo and the TV channel aimed at men. And when I got there, they said, look, we've lost our way and we're losing market share and people are watching other channels and we don't really know who we are anymore. And their brand message was unapologetically male. Mm -hmm. And I said, the problem was when you launched, you launched in the time of Loaded magazine when unapologetically male meant burping and farting and drinking beer and being a a bloke's Uh bloke. And it was all about funny captions under magazine photos. And since then, you've missed out on, you know, sort of yoga man, ponytail man, GQ arena, hom man. And and now men do yoga and hold doors open for ladies and and they eat vegetarian food. You forgot to evolve. Now, that's still unapologetically Mm -hmm. male. But now it's less of an alpha male. It's much more of a kind of spiritual male. And you forgot to evolve. And I think, you know, motorcycle culture is exactly the same. You know, the, the, the culture around us is evolving all the time. But the principles of what motorcycles stand for are exactly the same. They, you know, it's a, a very pure expression of community and experience. Motorcycles are a metaphor for, for being part of something. They, they mean adventure. They mean speed. They mean sport. They mean you know, being a sort of slight outsider, um, you know, any, you know, you look at a, a cool commercial, they stick a guy on a motorcycle. If, if you want to be the inappropriate boyfriend in a movie, you arrive on a motorcycle. <laughs> if you want to be chased by dinosaurs, you run away on a motorcycle. Um, or if you're the slightly naughty Captain Kirk on the new Starship Enterprise, you turn up on a space motorcycle. That phenomenon of what two wheels stands for there's always got a truth behind it. It's always got this core of 
rebellion and individuality and independence and freedom. But the expression of that evolves. One day it'll be electric. Yep. And it's gone through Americana. It's gone through being Japanese. It's gone. It's going through being British right now and European again is cool. Mm-hmm. And, and it'll always have these evolving iterations. And the people who like bikes are also evolving. You know, what they wear, what they ride, how they express that changes all the time. But the core idea of two wheels and freedom will always be there. So as long as we evolve our menu and our service and the, the retail product we sell and the way we look after people, I think we'll stay relevant. Um, and that's the key. And, you know, right now our look and feel I, I would say we're a little bit um, Soho House circa 1996. You know, we're kind of old leather sofas and Turkish rugs and, you know, we're, and we're a bit man cavey. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, going forward into L.A. will evolve a little bit. and We'll move forward and, you know, we'll try and evolve that concept. And, you know, and I'd also say to the guys here, we have this, um, the Japanese idea of Kaizen, constant improvement. Mm-hmm. So I'm always saying to the, to the, to the people running this business, you know, in a year, I want everything to look completely different. But if you come here every day, I wouldn't want anyone to notice. Yep. A bit like Prince Charles's haircut. Exactly. Exactly that. And uh, talk, tell me about the mistakes you've made on the way through, because you can't get, you can't just produce something as excellent as you've got without having made a few mistakes. I certainly think we made loads of mistakes. I don't know how I would have fixed those even with hindsight. I mean, I think it took a long time to find the right managers in hospitality we went through quite a few people mm-hmm. before i think we thought we had to compromise more than we really did when we when we set up the hospitality part of our industry uh, part of our business which is such a big chunk of our uh, revenue mm-hmm. um we thought we just had to hire sort of hospitality people that wouldn't be part of our culture as an event-based motorcycle business um and we were wrong. We, we were happy at the beginning for it to feel different. Mm-hmm. And I think for a long time, our restaurant felt like a bolt-on business and it felt like someone else was running it as though we'd offered it up as a franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we shouldn't have compromised. We should have waited in fact, until we found the right people for that. Um, I think the other thing was I didn't realize what a cash-hungry monster the um, hospitality business is. We should have had a lot more money in the bank for cash flow. Right. <clears throat> and we could have done we, we could have made our lives an awful lot easier if we'd raised more money in the first place. But even with hindsight, I don't think we'd have been able to raise more money because the project was so ambitious and I think it was such a risky venture for our investors that I don't think that if if I'd gone out there asking for as much as we needed in the end, I don't think they'd have given it to us. So what we had to do was raise money and then raise a bit more. Mm-hmm. And then when we found that our only our problem was cash flow rather than um, establishing ourselves, then we were able to go back and show the numbers and show that we were trading well and that we, we needed to raise more to manage cash flow. Um, so I think that was, they were mistakes we couldn't really avoid. Um, but other than that, things went relatively smoothly. I mean, we've managed to sort of meet our intended forecast targets almost from day one, Fantastic. Um, which is pretty surprising, to be honest. Um, so I think, um, yeah, raising, making sure you've got enough in the bank is, is a major thing. The, the retail side of your business is quite interesting because it, it does, you know, you said, you know, with the, with the hospitality side, not feeling like a bolt on it. It does feel like a, a, a combined air, a community. How does the, the online side affect the, the, the shop and how does that develop? 
I mean, they're two sort of quite different things in a weird way, certainly from a business point of view. Our physical shop is there to attract people to the venue. It's, mm-hmm. it's a footfall. It's, it's, a, it's a worm on a hook to get people here who ride motorcycles. Right. Um, because, you know, to be an authentic motorcycle place, you need to sell crash helmets and gloves and boots and protective wear. Mm-hmm. So I, I need to know that if someone comes here on a motorcycle, um, they can buy everything they need to ride a bike. Yep. And it's a genuine motorcycle store. Now, online, we don't try and do that at all. Online, we are um, a bike shed motorcycle club apparel business, and we mm-hmm. sell a lot more T-shirts and sweatshirts and hoodies and caps and, and jackets and jeans that aren't protective right. because we're a retail brand. So our online presence is really about bike shed motorcycle club gear and apparel, some mm-hmm. of which is protective, but you, you can't buy everything you need for a motorcycle on our online store. You have to go to Urban Rider, where we're hosted, mm-hmm. to buy the things that we don't sell there. Right. I mean, we do one pair of bike shed gloves. That's it. So if you don't like okay. those gloves, then that's no good to you. So they, they serve slightly different functions. And, so, and, and then the other part of the store here is it's a lot more of a souvenir merchandise store as well, because a lot mm-hmm. of people come who are tourists who just want a t-shirt with Bike Shed London written on it. Mm-hmm. And so we also have a big part of that store that is just this gift buy or, you know, kids walk out with kids t-shirts with Bike Shed written on them because mm-hmm. their family came here after <laughs> Columbia Road flower market. Yeah. So on the one hand, we're a proper motorcycle store selling third party product and we'll sell showy helmets and, and we'll sell sort of, you know, loads of brands that we don't offer online. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the and then the other corner, we're also this kind of souvenir. I've been to the bike shed. I've bought the t-shirt shop. Yeah. Whereas online, we sit in the middle. We're we're much more about more considered apparel. Okay. It's no. It's it's very interesting to talk around because there is a distinct difference. But also, you talked about niching very early on, and you've certainly done that within the retail space. You say you can buy everything there, but you can't buy anything cheap there. It's all very high quality and very interesting stuff it's different to eat the, the kind of things you can get elsewhere yeah i mean the thing about cheap is cheap only works if you have scale mm-hmm. um and we'd rather sell quality product which matches the rest of our brand values which have always been about do something properly or not at all mm-hmm. whether it's an event or you know anything um and so you know if you, you if you start looking at pricing and you start trying to get volume of product out the door um then you, you you suddenly set yourself up with loads of really awkward problems in how you operate your business and i think it's much easier to really believe in what you do and do a really good job of it and get people to buy into it mm-hmm. as long as people have value for money i don't think people want cheap right um you know as, as the cliche goes good things ain't cheap and cheap things ain't good and i think it's off it's often a real truth and unless you've got massive massive scale and you mm-hmm. can buy a hundred thousand t-shirts in china you're not going to get the pricing that some people expect from some of those big brands. Uh, absolutely. And sure, I wasn't particularly thinking about it being too expensive. It's just that it's obviously it's focused at a particular um, economic level for, for the kind of clientele I guess you want to attract. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not sort of hugely strategic in that we don't sort of go, we want to be upmarket, mm-hmm. so we don't okay. sell cheap stuff. I think what it is, is we are, I mean, uh, we're in a very privileged position that we are our own customers. I mean, I've spent a lot of my time as a, a guardian of various brands where I'm not the target market. Mm-hmm. 
you know, when I was creative director at Cartoon Network, my target market was a 10 year old boy. So you spend a lot of time trying to not be you and to to think like someone else. In this case, you know, we're the target market. So we simply make and buy and sell what we like and we try and price it fairly. So, you know, we we go, is that a fair price? Would I pay that? And then we go, well, is there enough margin in it for us to buy it and sell it or make it and sell it? So it's an outcome of a behavior rather than a strategy. I mean, if, if the strategy is, you know, it, it does this suit our target market and is the price right? Mm. Um, but it isn't up market or down market or anything. It's just, is it right? Well, I'll tell you what, it gets me every time. I don't think I've walked through your place without taking something home with me. That's good news. And I've always, well, <laughs> I've always enjoyed it though, but who doesn't like getting themselves something nice when they can? But please come off and. Dutch, I really enjoyed con- the conversation with you. It's been fantastic. And there's lots of great bits and pieces there that people can take away with them. What I'd love you to do is leave us with just that one thing, your one big thought, your, your golden nugget, something that people could do in their businesses today to make them better for today and better for the years to come. What would that be? I think, uh, I think maybe there's two things, not one. Okay. I think the, the easy first throwaway thing on the way to the big thing is this idea of evolution. Always evolve. Um, uh, if you don't evolve, you will end up finding yourself at a certain t- point in time um, left behind and irrelevant, and then you'll have to have a revolution. Mm-hmm. Evolutions are much cheaper than revolutions. Revolutions mean a lot of blood on the carpet um, and big refurbs and getting rid of people. If you're evolving all the time, you won't have to do that. Um, <clears throat> I think the other thing is to always be, you know, be on the outside of your business looking in. I think people are very, very bad at that. We all know what we do and how we do it. But we don't often step back and go, why are we doing it? And why would a customer come into our door and spend money with us? Um, And if you can walk outside of your venue or your space or or your channel and say, what's going to make me as a customer walk in and participate and part with my money? Um, you're in a much better place for making business decisions. Absolutely fantastic, Dutch. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great chatting with you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of The Only One Business Show, and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts. And in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.